Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist's Newsflash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Chris Smith, Kat Arney and Dave Ansell, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, we hear the delightful duet of flirting mosquitoes. And what's actually happening is that the two mosquitoes are adapting the beating frequency of their wings so that they harmonise. And that harmony is a mosquito's way of saying, I love you. Plus, we'll be hearing about how a protein called LOX helps cancers to spread. Now, LOX acts a bit like a, a master craftsman, and it glues together the proteins that form the extracellular matrix, or the jelly that holds cells together, attracting bone marrow cells, and therefore making the right kind of environment for cancer cells to spread into. And how rocks on Mars distribute themselves across the surface of the red planet. If you look at photos of the Martian surface, it's strewn with small rocks from the size of pebbles to cobbles. If they'd been thrown down on the ground, you'd expect some of them to be touching, some of them to be a long way from others, sort of randomly um, organised. But if you actually look at them on Mars, they're all about as far away from other rocks as they can get. It's as if they're repelling each other. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have published a paper in the journal Science where they have found out how mosquitoes tell each other that they fancy one another. Now have a listen to this. That is a male mosquito buzzing its wings at something like 600 hertz, 600 times a second. Have a listen to the female mosquito, and these are Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. Here we go. Now, I won't subject you to too much more because Dr. Cat, Dr. Cat has got her fingers in her ears. But that's at about 400 hertz, so 400 times a second. The female is slightly slower than the males. But if you do what two researchers at Cornell did, that's Lauren Cater and Ben Arthur, they put one of those mosquitoes tethered to a pin with a piece of superglue so they could keep it in one place, and they bring in a mosquito of the opposite sex and they record what happens to the wings of the two. Have a listen to this. Now, what's actually happening is that the two mosquitoes are adapting the beating frequency of their wings so that they harmonise. Now, they're not making their wings flap at exactly the same rate as each other. The female stays at her roughly 400 times a second rate, and the male stays at his roughly 600 times. But by getting them just right, because when you have multiples of a frequency, you get things called harmonics. And the first set of harmonics that are the same for these two are at 1,200 hertz. In other words, when you take the third harmonic of the female and the second harmonic of the male, you get something at 1,200 hertz. That's those beats you can hear going through that uh, rhythm. And the mosquito's antennae are very sensitive, it turns out, to vibration at 1200 hertz they have something called a johnston's organ and what this team of researchers did was to put wires into these mosquitoes antennae and record what actually happened when they heard those sounds and the activity shoots up and so the mosquitoes tune into each other synchronize their wing beats to send a message to each other that one is interested in the other and then they know that they can mate they get together and mate and then when they have mated something happens to the female because she loses interest in those sounds after that and the researchers were able to show that once a mosquito was mated she would know no longer respond at those sounds. And this is very important, the researchers point out, because now we understand, in the words of Lauren Cater, partly what constitutes a sexy male mosquito, because what they're trying to do is to understand the mating habits of mosquitoes because 
At the moment, mosquitoes are probably the most dangerous animal on Earth because they spread one of the most fearsome diseases of all time, that's malaria, which affects 300 million people a year and also causes 3 million deaths. They also, if they're Aedes aegypti, like these mosquitoes, they spread another disease called dengue, which is causing 50 or 60 million cases a year. So very important diseases. If we can understand how mosquitoes attract and mate with each other, we can try and make ways of blocking that process and therefore stopping them from transmitting these kind of infections. So very important work. And one of the things I think is most fascinating about that paper is that previously researchers had just thought these mosquitoes were actually deaf, that males couldn't hear high frequencies and, and female mosquitoes were totally tone deaf. And now they've discovered not only can they hear, but, you know, they can tune into each other. And they can also hear up to 2,000 hertz. So their antennae are very, very sensitive. And in fact, as uh, Lauren Cater put it to me, um, there are as many nerves that the mosquitoes are using to effectively hear with their antennae as we've got in our ears. Fabulous stuff. Who knew mosquitoes were so complex? Uh, from one complex animal to a very complex disease, and that's cancer. Nine out of ten cancer deaths are due to tumours that have spread from the original site, the primary tumour, to form secondary tumours in places like the lungs, the liver, the brain. And scientists call this process metastasis. And now new research from scientists in the US, the UK and Canada has revealed a very important molecule called LOX that's involved in metastasis, and this could lead to new treatments for cancer. Now, to explain why LOX is so important, we need to backtrack a bit because secondary tumours, these, these metastases, they don't just spring up anywhere. And in the same way that if a gardener wants to spread seeds on the ground, you need to have the right soil. So seeds that fall on a, a gravel path, they're not really going to grow. But seeds that fall in nice, moist soil, they'll grow. And it's the same with cancer cells that spread around the body. They need to find these nice little niches called pre-metastatic niches that are formed by little bundles of cells from the bone marrow that sit in these little bundles and the cancer, they sort of make an environment that the cancer cells like. And now Janine Erler and her colleagues have found that a protein called LOX helps to play an important role in forming these niches. Now LOX acts a bit like a, a master craftsman and it glues together the proteins that form the extracellular matrix or the jelly that holds cells together. And, uh, and they think that LOX is gluing together these proteins, attracting bone marrow cells and therefore making the right kind of environment for cancer cells to spread into. And so the team showed that LOX was important by transplanting mice with normal breast cancer cells and then breast cancer cells that had been genetically manipulated so they didn't carry this LOX protein at all. And they found that these LOX-free cancer cells just didn't really spread. They couldn't make the changes uh, in the area to, to spread into. So this is really important because because it's not just mouse breast cancer cells. They found in 95 samples of secondary tumours from cancer patients with all types of cancer from breast, bowel, stomach and esophageal cancers. In more than half of these samples, there were high levels of LOX and little clusters of these bone marrow cells. So potentially could be a good target for cancer drugs in the future. It's amazing to think that, that a cancer cell in one part of the body is manipulating or orchestrating the behaviour of whole clusters of tissues elsewhere in the body and, and making it possible for it to spread in that way. They're incredible things. They're, they're almost like rogue organs, tumours are. They, they manipulate the immune system, they manipulate all these molecules to kind of get their own way and, and get round the body's processes. And, and one of the things we have to remember is, of course, cancers have got the entire genetic repertoire of, of, of our body at their disposal. And not just that, but they can also rearrange genes because they're genetically a bit messed up anyway. And this means that they can make whole new proteins that do whole new jobs and that's why there's such a danger to, the, to life, because they completely 
to contort your your biochemistry to whatever they want to do. Exactly, they're they're evolving cells. They you know they have all these changes in them, and then under whatever pressure the body throws at them, they they change again. It's uh, yeah, crazy things. Do we know why your body has these clusters of bone marrow cells around the place normally? Well, it's probably to do with uh, the, the tumor cells that are around. They secrete these things like locks, and that causes changes. But then there there may be just these bone marrow cells in little groups. It's not really very well understood what prepares these pre-metastatic niches. Some of it might be from cancer cells, some of it might be there already, we don't really know. Some people have suggested it's a repair process because if you do experiments on mice which have been manipulated so they make green glowing bone marrow cells and then you make, say, injuries in the skin, then you see skin cells that are glowing green later. And what this suggests is that because the only cells in the body that glow green are bone marrow stem cells, probably stem cells come out of the bone marrow, they get recruited to the injured place, and they then turn into new cells at the injury site to help to make good a repair. That's an intriguing link between cancer and long-term inflammation as well, that kind of thing. Okay, now onto a completely different subject. The Spirit and Opportunity Mars rovers, which have recently celebrated their fifth anniversary on Mars, seem to have discovered a strange force which is pushing rocks around on the Martian surface. If you look at photos of the Martian surface, it's strewn with small rocks from the size of pebbles to cobbles. However, if you look at them, if, you, if they'd been thrown down on the ground, you'd expect some of them to be touching, some of them to be a long way from others, but sort of randomly um, organised. But if you actually look at them on Mars, they're all about as far away from other rocks as they can get. It's as if they're repelling each other. Now, there is wind on Mars. The only thing which could be really been moving them is the wind on Mars. But the wind, although it can get up really quite fast, tens of miles an hour, even hundreds of miles an hour, because there's only about 1% of the atmosphere on Mars than on Earth, there's not enough force there to actually move these quite large rocks. So what do they think is going on? Well, John Pelletier from the University of Arizona seems to have worked out he's got a really good theory. It's very similar to what happens if you've ever made a dam in a stream on a sandy beach using rocks. If you put a rock down in the stream, you'll find that the sand gets eroded around at the front of it and at the sides where the water speeds up to go around it. Um, and that certainly makes a hole and eventually the rock sort of falls up upstream into that hole and so the rock moves now if you imagine two rocks on mars they're sitting next to each other and you've got wind blowing around them there'll be sort of a sheltered area between them so you'll tend to get sand depositing in that area between them and, and when the wind splits to go around them it'll speed up so you get erosion on the, either side of them so they'll fall apart they'll move away from each so other you get two holes dug and they fall apart and they slowly move away from each other and it's as if they're repelling each other so it's intriguing to think there's green. a sort of mathematical explanation for something like that isn't it i wish they were like doozers on mars <laughs> be brilliant it would be a lot more fun but... thank you dave that's an intriguing story thank you for that now uh, an intriguing story as well this week back here on earth is the scientists have uncovered how it is that the brain prioritizes some of the things that are coming into the body and the sensory information that we're assailed with and deluged with every second of our lives now this is andy parton who's a researcher at brunel university he's got a paper in this week's journal pnas and he's uncovered this intriguing rhythmic firing pattern that the brain uses to hide information in the information that we're processing. So in other words, if you're looking at a picture and you want to look at one bit of that picture, although there's information from the entire picture coming into your brain, your attention is focused on the bit you're looking at. Now part of that is because obviously the eye has the macula, which has got far more information coming in in terms of detail to that bit you're looking at, but still you're able to ignore all the other things going on around you and just focus on that thing that you want your attention to be focused on. How do you do that? Well, it turns out that the brain adds this coding 
which is a, a rhythmic firing of nerve cells at 50 hertz, so about 50 times a second. And when you have that code hidden in the nerve signal, then the brain pays much more attention to the things that have got that code added to them. And what they did was to sit down a group of volunteers in front of a computer screen on which they had three circles with vertical lines on them. And one of the circles was flickering on and off 30 times a second, another at 50 times a second, and the other was effectively not changing. And what they asked the subjects to do was to look at these three circles side by side and to spot which one, whenever, the vertical lines got very slightly wider. And what they found was that people were much, much better at noticing when the lines got slightly wider in the circle flashing at 50 hertz than any of the others. And when they asked the people, can you see any of the circles flashing, they couldn't. So this was a totally subconscious effect. So it shows that the brain has this ability to apply this code to processing information which prioritises that information, but you don't just have to let the brain decide what's important. You can actually hide that information in the sensory information that's coming in. And so what this means is advertising. Are we going to see much more arresting adverts in future where we're going to be assailed with TV adverts you can't take your eyes off because you, you, you can't literally tear yourself away because they're so infectiously interesting? Or what about things like safety? Cars, for example, you could have warning signals, you could have road signs that are much better at catching your attention when they have to, but only when they have to, to make driving more safe. But also from a clinical perspective, and I asked Andy Parton this, there are various clinical syndromes where people have a problem paying attention to what's important and screening out what isn't. I'm thinking of things like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. These people have a problem focusing on the important things and not being distracted. And at the same time, people who have strokes can get a, a, a neglect syndrome where they might, for instance, ignore half their body. They don't realise it exists. They can't relate to half of their body. And he thinks that perhaps a better understanding of this system might help us to develop better ways to treat both of those problems. The other interesting thing is that televisions update about once every about 50 times a second. So I wonder whether that's part of the reason why they're quite You've, so interesting. That's why you think TV is so compelling. Not just because it's strictly come dancing, Dave. You just think it's <laughs> it something, something to do with the electronics. Might be in it. I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, this is a lovely story about um, not, not three blind mice, but certainly blind mice. And we're often talking here on The Naked Scientists about research into stem cells, which could have the potential to treat many different diseases. And this is because you can persuade stem cells to take on the identity of a wide range of different cell types. And now researchers at the University of Washington in Seattle have used human embryonic stem cells to restore some sight, or at least responses to light, to blind mice. And the researchers were using mice that were lacking a gene called CRX, which means that basically they're, they're blind from birth as they don't develop proper photoreceptors. These are the cells that sense light. And they grew human embryonic stem cells in the lab. They treated them with certain chemicals and growth factors that encouraged the stem cells to change towards being retinal cells. These are the cells that are found down the back of your eyeball that sense the light, send the message to the brain. And then the scientists injected these modified stem cells into the eyeballs of mice. And they found that the, the retinal cells from the stem cells settled into the back of the eyeball, forming organised layers. And then when they injected these cells into the eyes of CRX-deficient mice, these blind mice, they started to turn into photoreceptors. And when the scientists tested the mice's responses to light, they found that these new photoreceptors could respond to light flashes compared to eyeballs that hadn't been injected at all. So from these mice, they would show no response to light because obviously they don't have these photoreceptors. And also the eyes that had the biggest areas of transplanted 
donated cells had the biggest responses to light, showing that it's a definite effect of the transplant. And so this is really, really interesting because it suggests that at least in humans, possibly, human embryonic stem cells could be used to replace damaged photoreceptors and this could restore sight to people whose eyesight is damaged, for example, through macular degeneration or even to those who've been born blind. I think it's a really exciting step forward. It certainly is because it tells you that uh, the signals are there in the tissue to tell those embryonic stem cells what to turn into and also how to wire themselves up correctly in order to work. Now, obviously, it's early days and these mice are not humans, so there's some way to go. Yeah, I mean, we have to be cautious here, but at the same time, small steps and everything, that's very encouraging. Yeah, I mean, they, they weren't seeing, you know, these mice couldn't see anything as such, but certainly getting a new response to light in mice that, that had absolutely none is, is really fantastic. Thank you, Kat. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Also this week, scientists in Scotland have discovered that humans and probably many other animals make their own anti-inflammatory chemicals. And the person who's made that discovery is Dr Gwen Baxter. She's from Dumfries and Galloway Royal Infirmary and she's here to tell us a bit about her discovery. Hello, Gwen. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. So what are the chemicals that uh, you've discovered that that humans make that are their own aspirin-like agents? Well, it's the finding that salicylic acid can be produced from benzoic acid, which hasn't been reported in in humans before. Tell us a little bit about salicylic acid. What is it? Okay, salicylic acid is a very simple compound. It's been around, very simple molecule. It's been around for a long time. It's recorded as being used as a therapeutic agent from about 3000 BC when it was used to... um, relieve pain, act as an anti-inflammatory agent, if you like, and to help reduce temperature, as in fever. So if we have it in our body already, why do we need to take more of it? Well, what we've discovered is that we seem to be able to produce it ourselves, and that's a novel thing that we're reporting, that previously we had assumed it was something that people took in, perhaps diet. Now we find that it persists in people. What do you think it's, it's actually doing in the people, though? We're thinking it's a bit like considering your endorphins. I think people are familiar with that, that that they can be upregulated. You know, you can increase the amount circulating should you require to do so um, in times of stress. And it's it's a very close sort of thinking to what happens with salicylic acid in plants because in plants it does act as a responder, if you like, to stress such as attack by a pathogen. So um, we're saying that humans are possibly in a position to do the same thing because we've shown that we can produce it. Now, you can make um, the same stuff from aspirin. In fact, when you put aspirin into the body, it it eventually turns into salicylic acid, doesn't it? So do you think that what you've discovered is basically the the way in which aspirin or part of the way in which aspirin works is achieved? Well, I think think, uh, you've got to go back a wee bit that um, salicylic acid was used for the things that um, aspirin is used for, except for the uh, effect that aspirin has on platelets and stops um, them sticking together, which is which is a therapeutic use of aspirin that salicylic acid doesn't have in the same way, although it does act as an anti-inflammatory. How do you actually get the salicylic made in the body? And does everyone make it? And do some people have more than others? Well, that's, that's another interesting thing. We, we've done lots of work over the years. We've, we've looked at people who, who obviously would have more salicylic acid in their body because they perhaps eat it. Um, so obviously vegetarians and they do have higher levels. 
um, no surprises there. But we've we've also looked at people who have been fasting and they still maintain it. So obviously it's not coming from diet, which was sort of the starting point of where is it coming from and can we find it? We're we're thinking that if we can find the store for it, it must be somewhere in the body or some precursor that such as benzoic acid, which is a product of lots of other metabolic pathways that we have already recorded in our body, that um, it can be used as a bioregulator and help perhaps with some chemo protection. As for does everybody make it? Well, you know, we have to find that out. And certainly in our work, we've discovered that not everyone can metabolize the salicylic acid. So perhaps there is a relationship there to maybe gene expression again. And I think the bottom line on that would be that it regulates biological systems. And a lot of people are working currently on how very small amounts of this salicylic acid can actually modulate gene expression. So it may be that if you're good at making it, you're protected better than people who can't. And maybe you have a lower risk of cancer. Gwen, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. That was Dr Gwen Baxter from Dumfries and Galloway Royal Infirmary. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. That's all the hot science news we have for this week. This Naked Scientist Newsflash featured Chris Smith, Kat Arney and Dave Ansell, and with many thanks to Dr Gwen Baxter for explaining how humans produce their own aspirin-like chemicals. This week's episode was produced by me, Ben Valsler. And if you've enjoyed the Newsflash, why not try out the weekly Naked Scientist podcast, featuring news, interviews with top scientists, your questions and a kitchen science experiment for you to try out at home. All of our content is archived on the web at www.thenakedscientist.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>